0: We'll hear argument now, number 921812, United States versus Pedro Alvarez Sanchez. Uh, Mr. Sotera.
1: Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Respondent was taken into custody on narcotics charges by California sheriffs on a Friday afternoon in August 1988 during the execution of a search warrant at his home, because counterfeit currency was found during that Friday search the state authorities contacted the United States Secret Service on Monday morning. Respondent was questioned by Secret Service agents late on Monday morning, and he admitted to knowingly possessing the counterfeit currency. The Secret Service agents then took him into custody on a federal counterfeiting charge. After writing a complaint and booking respondent on that charge, the agents were informed by the clerk of the federal court that there was no more room on the presentment calendar for the magistrate that day and were instructed to bring respondent back before the magistrate on Tuesday. That is what they did. There is nothing in the record, I take it, to indicate that the state of uh, officers
2: deliberately delayed in calling the federal people into the case? uh
1: There is nothing in the record to indicate uh, that they were doing this any later than any otherwise that they would otherwise have done, Justice Kennedy. Uh, And there is no indication at all uh, that anyone waited over the weekend for any other reason than the fact that it was the weekend. Um, The District Court found Respondent's confession voluntary and admitted it at his trial. Respondent was convicted, but the Ninth Circuit reversed, holding that the confession should have been suppressed under 18 U.S.C., Section 3501. Section 3501 has three subsections that are relevant to the Ninth Circuit's analysis of the case. Subsection A provides that if the trial judge finds that a confession was voluntarily made, she must admit it in evidence. Subsection B provides that in determining the issue of voluntariness, the trial judge must consider all the circumstances surrounding the giving of the confession, including, among others, any delay in presentment. And Subsection C precludes the district court from suppressing a confession solely because of delay if the confession was voluntary and was made within six hours of the defendant's arrest. The Ninth Circuit thought or concluded that Subsection C required suppression of respondent's confession. It reasoned that the negative implication of subsection C is that a confession made more than six hours after the defendant's arrest may be suppressed solely because of delay, even if it is voluntary and therefore mandatorily admissible under subsection A. How did the Ninth Circuit majority deal with subsection A? The Ninth Circuit indicated that it had to, in effect, carve an exception to subsection A in order to give meaning to, subsection, to the negative implication from subsection C. Uh, and uh, in light of this conclusion uh, that any confession that falls outside of the six-hour safe harbor may be suppressed because of delay. Uh, The court then went on to hold that the confession in this case fell outside of the six-hour safe harbor because it was given more than six hours after the arrest by the California authorities on Friday rather than by the federal authorities on Monday. Now, in our view... The Ninth Circuit was wrong to start the six-hour clock running with the state arrest. And in any event, the Ninth Circuit was wrong to conclude that a negative implication from subsection C should override an express affirmative statement in subsection A.
3: Mr. Estrada, if we were to decide that the arrest or detention that starts the time clock running... Um, is is really only one um, involving federal officials, then does that end the case we wouldn't then have to decide the meaning of the six-hour limitation? That is right,
1: Your Honor. Uh, we can win this case either by your holding that the six-hour clock starts ticking with the federal detention, or by the court holding that the negative implication of subsection C does not trump the affirmative statement of now, subsection A.
3: do you concede that the language any uh, law enforcement agency can indeed refer to state agencies in the event they are acting on behalf of the federal government? Yes, we do, Your Honor.
1: Uh, we concede that there are many circumstances in which state officers will, will enforce federal law under under any set of circumstances. And in circumstances when state officers are taking someone into custody for a federal crime, for example, or are acting for the federal agents rather than to enforce the state's own laws.
3: But uh, the arrest uh, that triggers it has to be one that gives rise to the need to take someone to a federal magistrate.
1: That is right. The gist of our claim, of our view in this case is that subsection C is directed to a period of delay between the defendant's being taken into custody for a federal offense and his being taken in front of a federal magistrate under Rule 5A. That was the subject of this court's supervisory rule under the McNabb-Mallory line of cases, and is actually how subsection C reads. Subsection C speaks of delay in bringing the defendant before a magistrate authorized to set bail for federal offenses. Uh, the trouble is that that limitation would not would
4: not allow in, uh, the uh, would, would not make the rule apply when the uh, state officers are, are acting as the cat's paw for the, for the federal officers. That is to say, so long as it's a genuine arrest for a state crime, and there's no anticipation that he's going to be drawn before a federal magistrate, the federal officers can, working hand-in-glove with the state officers, Induce them to hold uh, to hold the uh, the prisoner for too long without uh, without presenting him. Uh...
1: I agree that that the that subsection C would not apply in those circumstances, and the reason for that would be that in the circumstances that you have described, Justice Scalia, the state officers would not in fact be acting as a cat's paw for the federal agents, if the state officers are in fact acting to enforce their own laws uh, rather than serving merely as oh, the paw for the federal I agents. I mean, uh, my, my, in
4: the, my, my hypothetical, they are acting as, as the uh, cat's paw of the federal officers for the purpose of getting a confession to a federal crime. If, But the
1: arrest is for a state crime. Well, if it is a bona fide state arrest, no. and there are questions of mixed motive everywhere in the law. But if, in fact, when you deal with with it on those terms, you find that there was, in fact, a bona fide crime and a bona fide state arrest, I would agree with you. And I think that that is, in fact, a desirable result because one of the things that we want to do as a policy matter is to encourage cooperation between law enforcement officers in states with the federal government. It is only when the action is to evade and only to evade the requirements of Rule 5A that we think it is appropriate to consider the the fact that the defendant has been taken into custody as the act of the federal government. Um, and and in making that point, uh, we point not only to the text of Subsection C that, of, that of course, speaks to delay in bringing the defendant in front of a federal judge, but also to the history and the background um, that uh, preceded the statute. Um, under any view of the legislative history, Section 3501 was intended at least to limit and narrow the McNabb-Mallory rule. We say, over rule, but at least under any view, to limit and narrow. There was a background of case law before the statute that said that state arrests would not be considered federal for these purposes unless the defendant affirmatively demonstrated that uh, the federal agents, in effect, used the state uh, as a cat's paw to evade Rule 5. Um, and uh, can, you, can you give us an example of what, in your estimation, would be a cat's paw case? Sure. It isn't the one that Justice Scalia gave. No, it is a case in which there is no law enforcement interest for the state in taking the person into custody. Uh, A case as, uh, uh, like, for example, Anderson, in which there might have been some state law enforcement interest, but it's clear from the facts that that is, in fact, not what is going on, or a case in which the conduct at issue is not even a crime under, under state law. And nonetheless, uh, the person is picked up solely at the instance of the federal officers to allow the officers a period of time to question the defendant without complying with Rule 5A. So one of the examples is a case in which there is, in fact, no law that allows the state to do what it is doing so there is in fact a clear inference, uh, hopefully supported by other facts, uh, that all that is going on is that the federal agents are using the state to to do their bidding. That
0: would be a fairly rare situation, would it not, that the state police arrest someone when there's no basis under state law for arresting him? We hoped that that would be so, Mr. Chief
1: Justice. Um, I think that that is the view that the Second Circuit took of your case Anderson uh, in the Coppola case. I mean, that is to say, the Second Circuit read Coppola as being the case that I just... Uh, the Second Circuit read Anderson, excuse me, as being the, the case that I just posited to... Justice Ginsburg, and this court affirmed. Uh, so, yes, while that would be a rare circumstance, we're not saying that this is something that does happen, or indeed should happen, any, any more frequently than that. Um, Mr. Strider, I should know the answer to this question, but I don't. Are, are most um,
2: state officials, or officials in most states, empowered to make an arrest if they see a federal, if they become aware of a federal offense being committed in their presence or whatnot, um, uh, even though there is no state offense uh, implicated in the action? Yes, yes. And in those- so, so on your test, they, they would, there would still be a state interest, I take it, if they made that kind of an arrest and said, you know, we're just going to hold him for the
1: feds. Yes, but in that case, the clock would start ticking from the point when they took it upon themselves solely to to enforce federal law. I mean, we're not asking uh, that... So, so there's a case in which it wouldn't be a... I guess it wouldn't be the classic cat's paw, uh, but the clock would still start running at the moment of the arrest. Sure. I mean, we're not saying that the only case in which uh, we get tagged with the conduct of the state is a case in which we have willfully... Procured the the uh, the state. We do recognize that there are many circumstances in which uh, state officers uh, would undertake to enforce federal law, and we would want them to do so. But if that is all they're doing, uh, once they have taken on the burden to enforce federal law, they have to comply with federal law throughout, including Rule 5A. So that if a state officer, uh, as we say in our in our brief stops me and finds out that I have a federal warrant out for, for my arrest, the, but there's nothing wrong with my car or there is no other state reason to hold me. If he exercises uh, his right to take me into custody on the basis of the fact that I have a federal warrant, he has to comply with federal law and take me to a judge under Rule 5a. Uh, we're certainly not saying that the only circumstance that gives rise to uh, the state conduct being tagged to us is the typical cat's uh,
4: him. You say he takes him to a judge. He's, he's arrested. He's a state officer. Yes. He's arrested him for a federal crime. He takes him to a federal
1: judge? Yes. Yes, yes, Scalia. If, if he wants to take someone into custody for a uh, for a federal crime, uh, he has to take all of the duties that come with taking somebody into custody uh, by uh, for a federal crime, and those include taking him in front of a federal judge under Rule 5A. Uh, it may be that he is ignorant of those, but if, in fact, he was undertaking... To further the federal interest um, and, and fails uh, to see to it through to the end by taking him to the judge, we see nothing unfair uh, in our being tagged with that time. How does this happen? You, you have state uh, state officers coming before uh, federal magistrates regularly? Sometimes, not frequently. The the text of Rule 5, if I recall, actually speaks of a person making an arrest rather than a federal agent making an arrest, and it contemplates a broad range of possible um, instances of conduct, including the old notion of a citizen's. What arrest? For what, if, what, if, what if a state officer arrests somebody for both uh, state and federal
4: offenses? Does he have to come before a state uh, a state magistrate for the state offenses and a
1: federal magistrate for the federal offense? Well, I think uh, under under our view, if he takes someone into custody uh, for a state offense, his duty um, is to his employer, uh, and he does that first. And anyone who then wants to go in and charge the person with a federal offense would have to take to go into the into the states. Domain, as it were, uh, take him into custody and take him to a federal judge. Uh, But we would not consider that a federal arrest, even though it is a mixed motive type situation. uh, Because if there is in fact good reason uh, for holding the person under state law, and that reason is intended to be acted on by the state officer, we haven't yet come to the point where, where we think of the employees of the states as being there solely for the purpose of doing our bidding, and we understand that they have to comply with state law, uh, and that that's all that they should be expected to do.
5: Um, May May I ask you a question? In your reference to Rule 5a, it refers to an officer making an arrest under a warrant, do you say that would include a state officer, I gather? I would think so, Justice Stevens. But in the rule in 18 U.S.C. 3501C, when it refers to custody of any law enforcement officer, you think that means just federal officer? Uh, no. We, we, we think that in subsection C, it could be a state officer, oh, but that?
1: because of the context, only when acting to enforce federal law. Our point is that if a state officer undertakes to take someone into custody for a federal crime, he is enforcing state law, and he falls under the terms of subsection C and starts the six-hour clock running. Uh, Of course, the prerequisite for that is that he be enforcing federal law, because we think that that even though the section doesn't limit the identity of the officer who acts, it does limit the subject matter. Of what he's acting on. And by highlighting delay, uh, and since one can rarely be late for any sort of appointment one hasn't made, uh, the uh, the statute very clearly indicates uh, that it's making reference to an event that gives rise to a duty to take someone in front of a federal judge, and in our view, that is only an arrest for a federal crime. And as we say, that is also consistent with the historical background of the rule. Um, as to our second point, uh, even if it were true that, that an arrest for a state offense starts the six-hour clock running, we think it would be wrong to conclude that a confession made more than six hours after the arrest um, necessarily must be suppressed. It is not the case with safe harbors that if you ship wonders out of one of them, it is automatically sunk. Uh, subsection C says that suppression is precluded if the confession is voluntary and made within six hours of delay, uh, of the made within six hours of the arrest, excuse me, uh, solely on basis of delay. But it says nothing about any other confessions, and we think that those are left to generally applicable principles of law, including subsection A, which mandates that all voluntary confessions must be admitted.
2: If a confession is, is made within six hours, uh, but there's a charge of involuntary voluntariness. Is time a
1: factor that the judge may consider? Yes. Uh, under subsection B, as we read the three subsections, uh, subsection A says that the sole test is voluntariness. Subsection B says you may consider delay as one factor. And subsection C, in effect, even though it's somewhat complicated, we concede, uh, says that in determining subsection uh, uh, the question under subsection B, the court should not let delay of less than six hours tip the balance in favor of involuntariness. Well, it really doesn't say that. <laughs> I don't see how C is a, is a
4: safe harbor. Maybe you can explain how C can be a safe harbor when, when it's only made a safe harbor if, if the confession is voluntary. Well, and, and the confession isn't voluntary if one of the problems with it is that there was too much time elapsing uh, between arrest and arraignment. And I, I, I don't see how, how you ever get to... It, it,
1: it's perfectly circular. There is, there is no uh, seamless way of construing this statute, Justice Scalia, and we recognize that. I think that there are many less charitable things that one could say, but subsection C than what you just said. Uh, but... But in order to make it fit better with the balance of the statute, what we do, quite candidly, is to read subsection C as if it said, and it okay. otherwise, otherwise said, otherwise. Um, otherwise. which I think yes. is consistent with what Congress was trying to get at. Um, and in that connection, I should point out that the clause, if it is voluntary, was in the bill that came out of committee and went onto the floor, so that. To the extent that every party in front of the court concedes that that bill was designed to do away with the McNabb-Mallory rule. Well, look at Justice Stevens. Oh, We're to
4: say this to Mr. Estrada, would you?
1: Is that <laughs> all cause? me you're talking about. <laughs> well, this is Scalia. You asked me the last question, and I'm hoping that he won't ask any. <laughs> uh, no, but... To the extent, Justice Scalia and Justice Stevens, that, that every party before the court concedes that the bill that came out of committee um, was clearly intended to do away with McNabb-Mallory for good, the structural problems with the bill were already present at the time that the bill came on to the floor. And in fact, with Senator Scott's change on the floor, it makes a little bit more sense now than it did as it came out of... The committee Uh, conceding that uh, that the pros in subsection C is less than what what, less than what might might be called limpid. um, uh, The the key in trying to get an understanding of what Congress was trying to do, we think, is to uh, is to understand that from the outset. The subsection that was carrying all of the water to overrule McNabb Mallory was subsection A, and not subsection C. Subsection C, A, excuse me, said if it is voluntary, you must let it in. Subsection B says consider delay. Subsection C, in effect, is a tool to keep judges from overvaluing, overvaluing or overrating delay in making the judgment in B, or in B1. Uh, and And once you understand that subsection C was related to the McNabb-Mallory problem, but but that it was not itself the vehicle for for overruling McNabb-Mallory. One sees what the problem that Senator Scott has with it. Uh, As it came out onto the floor, it said, you may not consider delay as the tipping factor or as the one factor that would make something involuntary ever. His point is, I can think of cases in which, if you have an extremely long delay, that factor will be the factor that will make a confession involuntary. What we do is we put a limit on, uh, on subsection C to say that after a period of six hours, a district judge is free to uh, consider delay as a factor, as a full factor, and maybe even as the principal factor. Uh... Is it elegant? No, uh, but, but we do think that it makes sense out of every subsection of the statute to the extent that the statute can be made sense of. Um, now, <clears throat> and one of the things that we point to um, in in uh, giving that construction to the subsection is the overriding impetus for every subsection of the statute. If you step back and look at the statute, what the statute in effect says is, don't suppress because of X, don't suppress because of Y, don't suppress because of Z. Uh, and, it would, and one has to work really hard with the language of the statute and practically ignore all of the legislative history in order to get out of the statute a rule that says, suppress, and by the way, it's mandatory. Uh, and that is our sole point as to subsection C. Uh, if there are no further questions, I would like to reserve
5: the remainder of my time. for I the just battle. want to, perhaps you did cover this with Justice O'Connor, but you really in your circuitation you raised one question, which was the question about the state custody, as I understand it. And, and it is your position, if we answer that question in your favor, we don't reach this rather tricky question.
6: That is right. Yeah. Yes. Thank you, Justice. Thank you, Mr. Estrada. Mr. Gunn? Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court... I'll uh, start perhaps by addressing the time limitation point just because the questions were just focused on that. I think the main problem with the government's argument, Your Honors, is it basically does have to insert that word that it basically suggested inserting into subsection C. It has to insert the word otherwise in front of voluntary to make it have any sense. Worse, Your Honors, it seems to me that that thing creates an impossible scenario for a court to have to engage in Uh, Voluntariness is a case-specific inquiry. How can you inquire into something whether whether something is otherwise voluntary? How can you take some circumstance out and have a court inquire into whether it would have been voluntary without that circumstance?
2: Because you have a legal mind. I mean, that's what legal minds do.
6: But you have a legal mind, Your Honor, I think, that's focusing on the impact of certain circumstances on this defendant in that case, whether in fact that defendant's will was overborne. It's not probable cause, it's what a reasonable person would have thought, based on these facts. It's whether, in fact, this defendant's will was overborne. There is actually... How, how, how do you read section C? What, what, what does it mean
4: to you? It, it, it does nothing at all, then under your analysis, right? Well,
6: well, no, I think it does do something. There's three aspects of the plain language that I think fairly clearly, as clearly as you can get anything out of this statute, establish that it retains a limited McNam-Mallory-type rule. One, they refer, they use the word, they talk about inadmissibility, not involuntariness. Second, they use the word solely because of delay. They don't talk about because of delay that makes a confession involuntary. Third, Your Honor, and this, I think, makes the statute more than just a negative pregnant, more than just a negative implication statute, the provided paragraph refers to the time limitation contained in this subsection. They are saying this is an affirmative limitation on something. And um, what they're saying, in essence, is that this is a time limitation on the period of interrogation, which is exactly, I know the court doesn't want to look as carefully at the legislative history as Justice Stevens might, but that's exactly the way Senator Scott and Senator McClellan characterized it on the floor of the Senate. I also want to. Mr. Gunn? Yes, sir. Uh,
0: you say the government does violence to subsection C in its interpretation. You certainly have to do some violence to subsection A to get where you're going.
6: You have to read an exception. You have to read subsection C as a specific statute that controls over and creates an exception to the general in subsection A. But, Your Honor, I'd ask the court to consider. I think the government has to concede there's at least some, some exceptions to the literal language of subsection A anyway. Consider the rules of evidence. Certainly the government, I assume, would concede that the confession to be admissible has to be relevant. Well, I don't think
0: 3501 was intended to cover the entire waterfront. Uh, I think
6: it was was dealing, as I suspect you would agree, with with McNabb Mallory. Correct. But by its literal language, Your Honor, especially given the broad definition of confession in subsection E, it does cover the waterfront any time there's a confession. And my point is that you have to concede that its literal language is limited by the rules of evidence, for example, then it makes even more sense to concede that it's limited by the language of a subsection in the very same section.
0: Well, I, I think you have some difficulty with, with that point. When you have a statute that's addressed to the McNabb-Mallory rule and it's talking about admissibility for delay and under various circumstances, you have one categorical statement, and it does seem to me categorical, notwithstanding the fact you say there would have to be an exception, that it shall be admissible. And you're saying that is going to be limited by what comes after. Now, I'm not saying that's a totally unreasonable, but you're, you're having to take liberties with the statute the same way the government does.
6: We're having to treat subsection C as a more specific statute that creates a limitation to the general in subsection A. I think it frankly makes more sense, Your Honor, to find a limitation within the very same statute than it does to have to reach outside to other rules of evidence and so on. So... Um, but you're right, Your Honor. This, this, there is definitely a tension, albeit perhaps even an inconsistency, between subsection A and subsection C. But under our interpretation, subsection A still has an impact and still has some meaning. Under the government's interpretation, unless you insert a totally new word otherwise and then engage in this hypothetical, fact-specific uh, discussion, under the, their, their approach, subsection C, the phrase, if the confession was given within six hours of arraignment becomes totally superfluous.
0: Would your construction uh, require the exclusion of any statements that would have been admissible under the
6: McNabb-Mallory doctrine? Not as to the issue of delay versus voluntariness, Your Honor. As to the issue of state custody, our position is no, but it depends on how you read the pre-3501 case law on this working arrangement type rule. Um, and perhaps I can step to address that issue, because I, think, I, w- I would agree with the government that the court doesn't need to re- reach the issue of the effective delay if, in fact, um, the uh, court rules against us on the state custody being included issue. I wanted to begin by addressing an issue that I wasn't able to address in my brief because I didn't read it in the government's opening brief, and it's a concession they make in their reply brief that I think is very important. They concede in their reply brief that some arrests by state officers are included. Um, and I just wanted to point out two things about that concession. Uh, apparently. The,
4: the concession in the reply brief?
6: Uh, Your Honor, I believe it's on page, uh, two of the reply brief. It actually begins on page one, and it's the paragraph, the second paragraph in the reply brief. Um, The uh, second sentence, they indicate we have never claimed, however, that arrests by state officers cannot be arrests under Section 3501C. Um, They then go on to say the test is whether it is, quote, for a violation of federal law, unquote. And they then go on to use the example of the officer who initially stops for a traffic offense and then finds a federal warrant and arrests on that. Your Honor, I think that concession raises two very significant problems with the government's position and interpretation of the statute. One... It's very problematic to create that subjective state-of-mind type of test, and in fact, somewhat inconsistent with this Court's approach to Fourth Amendment law, though here we're not talking about the Fourth Amendment. Second, Your Honor, it poses all sorts of line-drawing problems, some of which might even start getting the government close to the facts of this case. What if the officer is arresting for both a state charge and a federal charge? What if the officer is arresting for a single offense on the facts that could be charged under state law or federal Let me law? just pause
5: after your first hypothetical. It seemed to me the, that your opponent said that would be a federal arrest if it's on a federal charge.
6: Well, what I heard him say, Your Honor, and I may have heard him wrong, I heard him say if it was on both a state offense and a federal offense, that then it would be state. Oh, i misunderstood. But that's not crystal clear to me that that's the way it should be. What if it's for what we call a, a dual prosecution offense? A common example would be bank robbery can be charged either as bank robbery under 18 U.S.C. Section 2113A or robbery under California Penal Code Section 211.
0: Well, what I, is would it? That, I would think that would be rather clear. If, if a state officer is arresting for something that is both a state and a federal crime, you assume he's arresting for the state crime.
6: What if the standard practice in that district and his plan is to let the FBI take the man to federal court and the first thing he's going to do when he gets to the police station is call the FBI? Well, um, I mean,
0: you, you, you call those line drawing problems, or they're evidentiary problems. I don't know that it's so difficult to draw the line.
6: Well, I mean, then the example, he takes him to the police station, does it depend on whether he writes Penal Code 211 on the booking sheet or 2113A? It strikes me that, that some, some problems are going to arise in determining that, Your Honor. Now, if the plain language of the statute required that result, you'd be stuck and you have to interpret it as the plain language. But the plain language doesn't require that result, Your Honor. Uh the plain language refers to quote, arrest or other detention in the custody of any law enforcement officer. Not a federal law enforcement officer, not custody for a federal offense. Not arrest for a federal offense? But
4: he goes on to say, it shall not be uh, inadmissible because of delay in bringing such person before a magistrate or other imp- officer empowered to commit persons charged with offenses
6: against laws of the United States. Correct, Your Honor. That makes no sense unless you're talking about a federal offense. In its reply brief, the government focuses on that word, delay, Your Honor. Uh, the definition, I looked up the definition of delay in Webster's. Delay, at least one of the definitions, is uh, cause to occur more slowly. I would submit that when a federal a state officer, as in this case, arrests someone, plans to call the Secret Service to see if they want to prosecute the person, and then wait forty-eight hours to call the Secret Service, those forty-eight hours he waited caused the federal arraignment to take place forty-eight hours more slowly because he he, the, the, the and, sa- that,
4: and that would violate this uh, this provision even if he took the individual uh, before a state magistrate promptly?
6: Well, Your Honor, then the question that arises, I think that's a difficult question. It's
4: not at all. Not, not, not the way you interpret it.
6: Well, uh, one, one way it, it poses a, diff- a difficult policy problem, but I don't think the statute necessarily demands that, Your Honor. It depends on how you construe the word delay. Um, The statute is focused on delay that's caused by law enforcement officers, not delay that's caused by the court system or or state court procedures. And you could not apply it in a situation where there's a state arraignment because the delay there would at least generally be caused by the state court's need to have the person first and process him. So it wouldn't be delay that was caused by the officers. And I think you can construe the statute in context to refer to delay caused by law enforcement officers, not delay caused by the courts. Um, What would
0: be the policy virtue of that? Presumably, uh, the purpose of the rule is to deter federal officers from extended delay that might lead to putatively coerced confessions.
6: I think, Your Honor, that that's not the sole purpose of the law. I think it's a little broader than that. I think the purpose is to deter also state officers who are acting on behalf of or helping federal officers, either with a federal officer's request or without their request. I, if we think about the purposes of this statute, and of course to some extent it goes back to the purposes of the McNabb-Mallory rule and the purposes some of the congressmen talked about, the legislative history, it seems to me there's purposes of two basic types. One purpose is to have a bright-line rule um, that says, we're not going to allow confessions after this time. Then you don't have to inquire when a defendant says one thing happened during the 48 hours and the police say another thing. Um, You don't have to inquire about how this particular defendant was affected by the delay. Another purpose, Your Honor, another set of purposes, that applies as much, frankly, to innocent suspects as guilty suspects, maybe even more, is is all the interests and principles our society has in getting people to court promptly. Well, if,
0: if we go back to, I guess, what is called the legislative history of 5A, it appears that it wasn't in the interest of suspects at all. It was to prevent marshals from piling up mileage by taking someone to a distant magistrate.
3: Well,
6: Your Honor, that's not what the legislative history of 3501, I don't think, shows 3501 was for. The government quotes a Law Review article and a footnote in its brief uh, that says that looked like the purpose of the original arraignment rules that were construed in McNabb. But in 3501, Your Honor, what you have is you have some congressmen... I
0: thought we were talking about about Rule
6: 5A. I'm really focusing more on 18 U.S.C. 3501,
0: Your Honor. Uh, And what about... Is, is the language that we're talking about, about taking before a federal officer.
6: Um, Your Honor, in 501c, yes. um, the language I've been focusing on begins on the fifth line, or the end of the fourth line. It talks about arrest or other detention in the custody of any law enforcement officer or law enforcement agency uh, shall not be inadmissible solely...
0: Well, where, where is that, in, in oh, one of I'm the briefs? I'm sorry,
6: breaks. Your Honor, page three of the government's brief. Thank you. I apologize. It talks about arrest or other detention in the custody of any law enforcement officer or agency. And then it talks about because of delay in bringing such person before a magistrate. I think the words we need to focus on are any law enforcement officer and delay in bringing. What I'm suggesting.
3: Well, is I would it? think you had to focus on what it is that triggers the operation of the statute, to wit, an arrest for an offense that requires presentation.
6: I th- you're right. I think, and Your Honor, it's, it's the phrase arrest or other detention in the custody of any law enforcement officer or agency. I think you're right, Your Honor. Um, but those purposes, the purposes, I mean, the purposes underlying the statute of getting people to court quickly, and their purposes that were spoken about by the congressman during the debate. Um, You don't have any contact with family or friends while you're detained in communicado before going to court. You don't have a chance to get bail. Uh, You don't have a chance to have a magistrate consider whether there's probable cause. You don't have counsel to start checking into the case for you. All those purposes, all those goals, are advanced just as much by a statute that encourages state officers who are helping federal officers to contact the federal officers quickly. So I think in terms of the purposes and policies underlying the statute, Your Honor, that those are advanced. Uh, by focusing on state officers as well as federal officers, and the much more workable rule, the much better in context reading I would submit is to focus on the type of arraignment or the type of charge.
0: then how, how, how would your interpretation of the rule resolve the question where the state officer arrests on a, on a state bankrupt state state, state law bankrupt? bank robbery charge, excuse me, but there's also a possible federal bankruptcy charge that could be brought, federal bank robbery charge.
6: I think, Your Honor, in that case, it would depend on, on whether he's arraigned on the bank rob- federal bank robbery charge or whether he's arraigned on the state robbery charge. Well, what if he's arraigned on both of them? Well, then, Your Honor, I think you get a difficult question that depends on how you construe the words well, so, of the So your
0: solution really doesn't avoid the evidentiary problems or the, the line drawing, does it? I think it does, Your Honor, because... Oh, I thought you just said that this was a difficult question under your solution.
6: It's a difficult question of interpreting the statute, not a difficult question on the facts. The, the question then becomes one for this court... And frankly, you don't need to reach it on the facts of this case because there was no state arraignment and the state officers gave priority to the federal interest. But if you did want to reach it to have a complete interpretation of the statute, it would turn on whether you interpret the word delay in this statute as including delay caused only by law enforcement officers or whether you also include delay caused by state court procedures in the state court system. Well,
0: you you may have a statutory argument on your side, but I certainly don't think that your solution commends itself by reason of its simplicity.
6: Well, Your Honor, there's three possible situations that would arise factually. One would be where there's only a state arraignment, one would be where there's only a federal arraignment, and one would be where there's both. Under my approach, if there's only a federal arraignment, the statute applies from the time of state arrest. If there's only a state arraignment... The statute does not apply if there's both then this court it's not presented by the facts of this case but this court would, would have to decide how it interprets the what, what
0: if the state officers detain someone arrest someone detain him for 12 hours 16 hours and decide there isn't enough evidence here to bring him in on the state charge because one element of the state crime we can't prove but it's not so with the federal crime so let let's get the feds over here. Now they wouldn't have arraigned. He wouldn't have been arraigned. Correct. Then un, under your rule, state custody, there is is charged against the federal.
6: I would say so, Your Honor. You might have, you might have a situation ar- ar- arise on rare occasions where the state officers could establish, but they never even envisioned the possibility of federal charges until someplace down the road, and then well, that they will would-
0: be interrogated as to whether they envisioned the federal charges or not.
6: Maybe, but I think that would arise in only very rare occasions, Your Honor. I mean, most of the time, as in this case, the officers who arrested Mr. Alvarez knew about the state crime. They knew about the federal crime at the same time. The detective in charge of the investigation in this case, and frankly, it depends, I suppose, on how you construe working arrangement. But frankly, I would say under any construction of working arrangements that's reasonable under this statute, it should apply here, maybe even under the government's concession. The officers here arrest. They know about a state offense. They know about a federal offense. They plan on calling the Secret Service. That's their department policy. They call the Secret Service. They let the Secret Service come. They are acting only as secondary law enforcement authorities because they're going to let the Secret Service take Mr. Alvarez if the Secret Service wants to. The Secret Service wants to, but the they, Secret they, Service they, takes him.
2: They booked the defendant on the state charge only.
6: The record, the, the only record... Or, or am I in well, That's what the detective says in his declaration. That's what the district court said in its initial facts. The issue wasn't really litigated in the district court below in this case because under the controlling Ninth Circuit law, it didn't matter. So I don't, you certainly don't have a factual finding on any issue that there was any reason to contest.
2: Is there a booking sheet or something in the appendix? Or
6: in the I record? don't believe so, Your Honor. There's not in the joint appendix, and I don't believe there was ever one put into the record below. But, Your Honor, then you get into a really difficult line-drawing situation that arises at the government's uh, it does whether or not he's arrested for a federal offense depend on whether they write that charge on a booking sheet as opposed to what they did here where they decided to well, give... Well, I
2: assume any officer uh, knows why he is uh, holding a defendant, a suspect.
6: Well, he uh, may it, be...
2: It, being held on a charge.
6: Correct. But he may be holding a suspect, Your Honor, only because that's their way of being able to hold him until the Secret Service can come and decide if they want to take him, which was, in fact what the detective in charge said his plan and intent was in this case. One thing I did want to make the point to to this court about is um, if this court decides that there is just a working arrangement, if, there, if this court decides there is a working arrangement requirement, which was not a requirement under the Ninth Circuit case law on which this case was litigated in the district court, I would submit the matter has to at least be remanded for us to inquire into what this detective was thinking and what his intent was. You do have him saying, basically in his declaration, that he was not going to pursue the state charges unless the federal authorities weren't interested. And I would submit that that at least should fit within the context of this statute, even if you're going to read the words any law enforcement officer in delay in context.
5: Can I give you a hypothetical and see what the—what if the what if, uh, state officer arrests a man in possession of a stolen car, and after he's in state custody, they plan to prosecute him for the state offense, they find the cars cross state lines, so they call in a federal officer. Say, you can question if you want, or the federal officer question him, gets a confession, but in the meantime, the state decides to prosecute, and they keep him in jail for six or eight months, and then at the expiration of that period, the federal government decides it will also prosecute for the federal offense. Is the federal confession admissible?
6: Your Honor, I think that's a difficult question that I was suggesting to Justice Rehnquist. This court could resolve, but doesn't have to on the facts of this case. There's two ways to approach that question, and I think we prevail under either way of approaching it, Your Honor. And it depends on how you construe the word delay in the statute. Um, A reasonable construction would be to construe it only as delay caused by law enforcement officers. And I think in the hypothetical Your Honor just suggested, the delay would really be a result of the state court system and state authorities wanting to and having an interest in prosecuting the defendant.
5: Plus the decision of the federal government not to make up its mind about what to do with them until... There's no hurry on it, so and, and no pressure. He's just going to spend his next six months in state custody anyway, so they just don't have to make a decision.
6: Correct, but at least, at least in part, the delay is is from the state off state court system and yeah. state prosecutors deciding to pursue the charges and needing to have the defendant there for the trial, et cetera. Um, and and once he's been arraigned in state court, then he's no longer he's no longer in a in a state of non-arraigned custody, so to speak, which.
5: But you think delay in bringing such person before a magistrate or other officer can include delay in bringing before the state magistrate? Is that it? In other words, they were prompt and they did everything promptly, but it just took a long time to get to the, to the federal system. I'm not quite clear on. I don't, I'm not sure I understand your. Position.
6: All right, Your Honor. Um, I, I think what I'm suggesting is the. In in your hypothetical, I would submit that at least one appropriate reading of the statute... I mean, one could also argue that delay means delay, and it doesn't matter, and it applies. You don't need to decide that here. But the other approach, if you're worried about the policy implications of that, is to construe... I think the delay in that case could properly be considered to be or attributed as delay due to the state courts and state prosecution situation. And then... The delay would not be delay attributable to law enforcement officers, and I think you can read this statute in context to focus on delay attributable to law enforcement officers. And that's certainly the overriding purpose: is delay that they cause, not delay that the courts cause by their legitimate procedures of having a trial and so on and so forth.
5: So you're adding some words to the statute too. <laughs>
6: well, Your, Your Honor, I don't think there's you don't any way Do not know what delay means?
5: Is what, what part of the problem?
6: To. to I mean, the the easiest way, the plain language approach, Your Honor, would be to say that's delay and the statute prohibits. Remember, the costs here are not that great. All you're saying are the officers, if they don't get to him within six hours, have to arraign him first. They can still interview him afterwards. Now, the government may come back and respond and say, well, his attorney won't let him talk. But if his attorney won't let him talk, then that's something our society as a general rule respects, um, so, so the cost of this statute applying, there's some great benefits in, in terms of the interest in propped arraignment that I've described, and in terms of um, of having a bright line rule. There's the costs are relatively minimal. The costs are simply you have to arraign someone before you interview them. Um, frankly, Your Honor, there's also a concern if you draw this this line between state and federal custody or custody for a federal offense, whatever that means. Uh, you create uh, an amazing uh, way of, of officers evading this statute, even when there's not a so-called working arrangement. For example, the state officer in this, in this case had a standard policy of contacting federal officials uh, when counterfeit money is found, but that's not a working arrangement under the government's version. I went back and read the transcript, Your Honor, of the testimony of the Secret Service agent in this case. I believe it's in the joint appendix at page... 26, I've got that page wrong. Your Honor. Did the Ninth Circuit rely on that at all? No, Your Honor. The Ninth Circuit just relied on long-standing Ninth Circuit case law that said state custody is included. And I've looked back in, in the history of the statute for that, and I haven't found any case that really analyzes the issue uh, extremely carefully. Uh, similarly, the cases the government cites really don't analyze the issue very carefully either. But what the Secret Service agent, Your Honor, did testify to in this case that I wanted to bring to the court's attention, and it uh, raises another problem of evasion, is he said, whenever a person's taken, this is, I'm sorry, Joint Appendix page 26. He testified that when a person is taken into custody by an outside agency, uh, meaning not the Secret Service, um, that an agent is sent to the particular agency where they meet with the investigators and discuss the case with them, and then he testified. In this case, as in all cases, I then interviewed the suspect in this case. Sounds to me what this agent is saying is he's developed a policy that always evades 3501C. He does the interview before he takes the person into custody. Suppose he had gotten a call from the law enforcement officer, the state officer, who said, we've got to arraign this man by Tuesday, and uh, we've got him in custody for counterfeit. And And he thought to himself, well, he might be more likely to talk to me if he sat in jail 24 hours longer. I'll go over Tuesday morning. Under the government's interpretation of the statute, 3501C doesn't apply. And you create, by construing the statute to eliminate state custody, you create a situation where that sort of thing can happen. Um, And I think that's more damaging and more something the drafters of this statute wanted to avoid than just someone having to go to court in some cases and arraign a person more promptly and interview them afterwards.
5: Isn't it true, though, that there may be a fair number of cases in which a person is in state custody and there may be something like counterfeit money or possession of a weapon or something that might justify a federal prosecution but also might not, in which it would be reasonable to say, well, the FBI or tra- Treasury ought to go over and interview the fellow, take a statement from him, and, and then decide what to do without having, having done the interview. Under your view, he must immediately charge him on the federal offense or not charge him at all. Assuming he's not going to repeat his, his, his statement later.
6: And, and assuming you... Yes, assuming you want to interview him before reigning. The other option, though, is to wait for the state proceedings to take their course.
5: Yes, to wait I mean, for normally you catch someone... I mean, I can understand a, a, a routine procedure which would involve prompt interview uh, to, to get out the fact, whatever the federal interest is, and not necessarily have an overriding interest in immediate prosecution. It's a, but it's a tricky problem.
6: It, it is, Your Honor, but the statutes... What it does is it gives the state officers an incentive to avoid that situation by calling the federal officers promptly. You have the same situation arise, Your Honor, if, for example, the Drug Enforcement Administration arrested on drug charges and found counterfeit money. And they don't deal with counterfeit money, so they call the Secret Service. The Secret Service might end up being, not losing the opportunity to interrogate if the DEA was negligent or lax in contacting them promptly. But that's an arrest... Uh, by a a federal agency, and I would think 3501C, even under the government's interpretation, would apply there. Um, So you're you're always going to have that situation where you want a statute that encourages the initial arresting officers, if they're going to pass the investigation on to someone else, to call those people that they're going to pass it on to promptly. So You say the
1: primary addressee of this 310 whatever it is, is really the state officer.
6: The primary... I'm sorry.
1: What you're saying is that this your reading of the statute puts pressure on the state officer to contact the federal officer promptly, and yet this is, a, this is a code directed to federal officers,
6: not state officers. It's a code directed, I think, Your Honor, to the federal courts and the way federal courts are to use evidence in their courts. Um, I think it's, arrested to, it's directed to federal officers, and I would submit, at the very least, state officers who are acting on behalf of federal officers even when the federal officers haven't specifically requested that, which is what we have here.
0: Thank you, you, Mr. Gunn. Thank you, Gunn. Uh, Mr. Estrada, you have four minutes remaining.
1: Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Only a couple of points. First, the concession that Council read in on our in our reply brief on the merits was made also in our reply brief at the search stage, uh, and we merely repeated it uh, in our reply brief on the merits because he made the same argument on his brief on the merits that he made in his opposition. At page one through two of our reply brief on the search stage, uh, we deal with this argument of any law enforcement officer uh, with the following. That claim, however, is irrelevant to our submission. We do not contend that arrests by state officers cannot qualify under, under Section 3501C. Our contention instead is that the arrest, whether by federal or state officers, must be for a violation of federal law. Only such an arrest can sensibly be viewed as imposing upon the arresting officer the duty to, quote, bring such person before a magistrate or other officer empowered to commit persons charged with offenses against the laws of the United States, unquote. That is from our reply brief at the petition stage. Um, our second point is that the basis for a person having been taken into custody is often litigated in state and federal courts because claims that the arrest was made without probable cause are a means for seeking the suppression of physical evidence Um, seized at the time the person was taken into custody. And as a result of that, as a matter of routine in federal court, officers, state and federal, are called on to explain what the basis for their conduct was at the time when it was taken, i.e., what law they thought was the, what law they thought there was probable cause to believe was being violated, and unless the court has any other questions, we will rest on our briefs.
0: Thank you, Mr. Estrada. The case is submitted.
4: The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.